Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thursdays, I'm usually here in the afternoon with my co-host, John Zipper, but this week has been a special week. Last night, we did a great program with the director and the star and co-creator of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It was an awesome program. So if you get a chance, check out the podcast, which I think we just posted. Today, though, is extra special. We're going to get into the weekend and celebrate, but be mindful of uh, the the weekend and what it means uh, we have a special guest with us. He's Michael Pina, and he's from Central Valley Scholars, an organization that's dedicated to providing online mentorship as well as help workshops, applying for college, possibly providing scholarships. We'll find out for Central Valley residents and who might identify as LGBTQI or undocumented, but marginalized. And I am super impressed. Let's welcome Michael to the program. Michael, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I know right before the, the, the show, I was like, I didn't have my coffee. I'm, I'm uh, dark and deep. And then here's my energy. Anyway, yeah, I'm super excited about what you're doing. And it's only two months old. Before we start talking about your work in the organization, though, it's tradition here on the program that you share with us a coming out story. Oh, of course. Uh, I, I, I haven't said this story in such a long time, I think. Um, but I can, of course, go back to that. Um, it was my junior year of high school. And I, this was a point where I learned to accept and love myself already. Um, my sophomore year of high school, I was, you know, very heteronormative, really tried to convince everyone in my school that I was straight. You know, I would, I did all these sports. I did wrestling, which was, you know, another story in <laughs> itself. Um, I had all these girlfriends, you know, every other week I'd be with another girl just trying to convince people, hey, like I'm straight. Um, and it was really toxic for me. But after after that year, I spent the summer completely by myself. Um, I, I did some work at some volunteer organizations, but I, I completely stayed away from people in my high school. And at that point, I realized that, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, if I'm gay, if I'm not gay, like no one's going to care. Um, and so I, I would even have dreams where people would ask me, are you gay? And I just, I couldn't say yes, but I also couldn't say no. Um, and so it was the time where I really learned to love and accept myself. I would even go on Omegle um, to talk to other queer people just because I come from Kerman, California. Um, and at the time, the biggest building that we had was the Catholic Church, which, you know, I had to face an exorcism at when I was 13 years old um, for being gay. And so I never got the chance to speak to any queer people. Um, and just going on, on Omegle or even watching like YouTube videos of other people coming out, um, it was just so important for me just because I got to hear other people's queer stories, you know, and coming out stories. And really, I got it was the first time I, I felt, you know, similar to someone I identified the same as someone else. Um, and so through that, it was my junior year, I didn't plan to come out, you know, my in my head, I was like, Oh, I'll go to college, you know, say bye to everyone. And then I'll come out. And then if my family doesn't accept me, well, I'll be in college already. So, you know, that that was the idea. Um, but during during the beginning of my junior year, my mom comes up to me and she says, I had a dream about you last night. And I said, hmm, what was it? And she goes, it was about you being gay and you came out to me. And in my head, I'm like, oh, in two years, you're going to remember this moment and be like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, we were just laughing and 
And then she brought up a situation of when I was in seventh grade, they had got me an iPad and I did not know how to clear history, <laughs> but I would search shirtless pictures of Justin Bieber or like shirtless pictures of Zac Efron. It was very innocent, like very, very innocent. Um, but I had all these searches of like shirtless boys on my history and they're like, why are you searching that? And you know, I, I went with their excuse of motivation to like lose weight and be fit. Um, but she brought that story up again and she asked me, why did you search all those shirtless guys? And at this moment, I, like I said before, I just couldn't lie anymore. I, I really couldn't lie about who I was. I accepted myself. I loved myself and I didn't want to lie anymore. And although I couldn't say it, it took her to say, you like guys. Mm. And to which I said yes. And from there was, you know, its own story with my parents learning to love and accept me um, and really taking away all these internalized homophobias that they had. Mm. Um, but yeah, I came out my junior year of high school. Which w was just to give some folks who are listening on Progressive Voices, uh, y you look like you're still in high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you just mentioned to me uh, before the, the show started that you are starting school. So just to give people an idea, coming out junior year was a couple years ago? Yeah, it was 20, 2016. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not, not too long ago. You mentioned something, and I, I read that you, you mentioned it in another interview as well. So hopefully... Yeah. something you don't mind talking about, but an exorcism. Yeah. That's what was that like? And that must've been traumatic or very bizarre. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And I think this summer really, this was the first summer I actually told my parents about it. Um, and just, it happened when I was 13 years old. And I think I've never really let myself, um, you know, deal with it until now. Um, I've just always kept that memory like suppressed behind my head. Um, but I was 13 years old and it was not with my parents. I do want to make that very clear. Um, it was not my parents who took me or forced me to have this exorcism. It was, I went to a Catholic retreat with um, some close relatives and in this Catholic retreat, it was somewhere out in the Central Valley. I don't really remember where it was. I just know we drove like an hour or so to get there. And in this retreat, you know, they, they talk about a whole bunch of stuff. It's just community members talking about, you know, Hello Kitty's the devil, Halloween's the devil, Disneyland's the devil, like basically everything that you might enjoy as the devil. Um, but then an actual priest came and started talking about homosexuality. And in his discussion of homosexuality, he talked about, you know, that if basically if you're gay, you're going to go to hell. Talked about the story of Adam and Eve and how God just wanted a man and woman together. Um, and anything else would like, you know, disrupt that and, and disrespect what God wanted. Um, and so he made it his mission to travel across the world and cure anyone who is gay. And he went to each, each child and he said, eres joto, which means, are you a fag in Spanish? And he did this to everyone, and you know they would say no, sign the cross on their body, and he came to me, and I was thirteen years old. I haven't even came out to myself yet. I still didn't even accept that I was gay, but it was just my conceptualization of this holy figure that you can't lie to, and you have to respect that when he asked me, "Eres joto." I said yes. Hmm. 
And when I said yes, they they moved me to a different room. Um, a whole bunch of people were circling around me. They started speaking in tongue, started throwing holy water at me. I I began to crowd down. They were, you know, pushing me, and I was just crying and crying and crying. And all I heard is, get the devil out of this boy. Get the devil out of this boy. And I and it went to the point where I was crouched down on the floor, on my knees, covering myself from all the holy water they were throwing at me. And to a point where I just couldn't cry anymore. And once I stopped crying, I guess to them, I had been delivered. And the devil had been taken out of me. And they sent me back to the retreat. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, uh, I, I feel so much hurt for, for that for that moment. And, and at the same time, you sharing these stories we've done for several years here on the program. Uh, here you are now. Uh, you know, a leader in your community, a youth activist, uh, thriving, going to college, going to one of the top colleges in their state, UC Berkeley. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, after, you know, that, that situation, then coming out to your parents, which sounded like it, it wasn't too bad coming out your parents and it was a lot of helping them. Um, but then the process of applying for college. So obviously you excelled. You're doing really well. Uh, did you talk about how, how difficult it was to identify as LGBTQ, like in your, your college essay and your application? Yeah, most definitely. You know, back home, I was one of the first out and proud people in Kerman, um, and in my high school ever. And, you know, I always had this shield of like, where I would protect myself and anything you tell me, like, I, I don't care. You know, I I had to have this shield. If not, I would not have survived there. Um, and it was the time of the end of my senior year. I was one of the valedictorians of my class. I got admitted into UC Berkeley. You know, I had all this prestige and privilege behind me that I've never had before. And, you know, applying to local scholarships was the time where, you know, hey, this is where I'm going to succeed. My counselors would tell me, my teachers would tell me, oh, yeah, this is a time where you're going to become successful. And, of course, due to the homophobic bias that a lot of these local scholarship interviews had, I did not get any scholarships. And there was a, a particular interview where they asked me what was the biggest challenge I faced while in high school. And I talked about being gay. Mm. You know, I, I touched a little bit on, you know, having to face an exorcism when I was 13 years old. I talked about how the own school administration tried to censor my senior quote, which was, yes, I dress nice. I wasn't in the closet this long for nothing. Um, and they tried to censor that quote. And I had to go all the way to the ACLU to get them on board with that. And, you know, after sharing all this, the interviewer looked at me and stated, well, the real issue is you being gay, not what happened to you. And at that moment, I was just so crushed. And I remember when they had the assembly of, of you know, announcing scholarships, it was always a straight white male <laughs> that obtained these scholarships over me. And at that point, 
it, like I said, it, I was just completely crushed. And I, I just couldn't believe that even with having the privilege of going to Berkeley, of being valedictorian, not even that was enough to get this local scholarship, not even national. I'm going against people that, you know, were from my community that had lower GPAs than me, had, you know, a less impressive resume as me. And still the fact that I was gay prevented me from obtaining these scholarships. You, of course, did go on and you, you I believe you're entering your junior year of at yes. Berkeley. Um, so over the course of two years, when did it start to germinate in your head? I want to do something about this and I'm going to, I mean, through a number of things you've said, you know, you're, you, you do stuff, you, 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 you don't hide it anymore and, and such. So when did that become, okay, I'm going to do something and I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, most definitely. The, and this is where the story gets a little tricky just because of my intersect, intersectional identities of being both Latinx and queer. You know, I feel certain things at different times. Um, and for me, I grew up in Kerman, California, which is majority Latinx. And I come from one of the least educated districts in the entire state of California. And when you grow up in these communities, the lack of resources and opportunities is a norm. And it wasn't really until I went to Berkeley where I had classmates who went to math camp and their doc you know, their parents were doctors and, you know, their parents were professors at other law schools. And, you know, in such a place of privilege, I never realized the lack of resources and opportunities that my community had. Um, and it was a huge culture shock for me as well, just going into this prestigious space and not being surrounded by my culture, you know, people who grew up like me, who had parents like me. And as I had conversations with people, we would we would complain, oh, this and this and this, and this school does this, this and this, but it would always end there. And so, you know what? I was like, screw that. Like, I'm going to do something. I had this idea of creating workshops, online mentorships, and scholarships to go back to my community and share these resources with students that we don't even know exist. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what I did. What are some examples of those resources? I, I'm looking back at, you know, the time in which I applied to go to school. I just wanted to get out of Stockton. Like yeah. It was just so, yeah, homophobic, racist, gang activity. We lived, you know, a really poor life. Um, I, when I got to college, I didn't really think about it. Any college who accepted me, I was willing to go because I wanted to get out so bad. Yeah. But if I had the chance to do it again and I knew that there are resources out there for me, what are some of those resources? Most definitely. Well, when we talk about communities like Kerman, Mendota, Tranquility, we're speaking to, to students that don't even know what UC Berkeley is. They don't even know what Princeton is. So a lot of it is just basic enlightenment, you know, enlightening these students and educating these students on universities. Um, mm. And once you do that, then you have to say, okay, here's how you apply to these universities to ask for like a letter of rec from a teacher is like, what, when, when do you have to do that to apply to college? Um, so a lot of that is just educating these students that, Hey, these universities exist and you can apply to them. Um, and beyond that, it's scholarships like the John Hopkins scholarship, the Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola scholarship, all these big national scholarships that our counselors don't take the time to educate us on and to tell us this is a scholarship that you can apply to that can possibly play for your entire undergraduate educational career. Um, 
And so, and just hearing from other students as well, the, the resources that they had in terms of applying to colleges, they had like different counselors that were there that would help them specifically on their essays, you know, counselors that would say, oh, here's how you apply to universities such as Princeton, Harvard, um, and having the lack of that really is what these students don't have. And so that's what I brought this summer to these students. And you've started it kind of thinking this might take a while to get off the ground, but it no, didn't. <laughs> it grew beyond me for sure. Um, I did start this two months ago. And my idea was just a simple workshop with 20 or so students, um, some college mentors for each student and, you know, food and, you know, just get to talk to the students. But it ended up expanding to over 50 students. And we traveled to three cities in the Central Valley, um, which are all part of the least educated district mm -hmm. in the entire state of California. Um, and in these workshops, we talked about college essays, how to write a good college essay. We talked about financial aid, Dream Act. We talked about scholarships available to them. We organized a handout where we listed a whole bunch of scholarships specifically by identity. So we have LGBTQ plus scholarships, disability scholarships, undocumented scholarships, first generation scholarships, South Asian scholarships. Um, we organize these scholarships for these students to read and say, hey, you know, here's I identify as this. And because I identify this, here are all the resources that I can apply to that can help me. Um, and we also what was really impactful, we had an honorary speaker, which is someone that originated from the Central Valley who has already graduated, you know, from their undergrad or got their JD and master's. And they come back and they speak to the students and they share their story. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's very beautiful for students because not only is this person successful in graduating, you know, from these prestigious universities, but they're also successful in their careers. So we had an, you know, an immigration attorney from the ACLU that went to law school at UC Berkeley. And then we also have a student panel of students that attend schools like UCLA, UC Berkeley, Columbia, Harvard, Stanford, that come back to the Central Valley, speak to these students about their experience and give advice on, you know, how to become successful and how to find a community in these prestigious universities. That's so incredible. Um, how about, you know, the, your experience in being passed up from the scholarship and identifying as LGBTQ? So uh, what would you, what kind of advice or if you were to create a workshop and talk to LGBTQI students in Kerman and some of those smaller towns that you mentioned in the Central Valley, what what would that entail? Like what would you have done differently that maybe you know now? Um uh -huh. Uh, and as far as accommodating to these students specifically? Yeah, so it, it just, it seems, it feels like in this day and age, and if you look in mainstream media, it seems like all the big major companies and foundations and organizations have some kind of LGBTQ support. Uh, what does that actually mean? Do they actually give out as much money as possible to LGBTQ students? Are they looking for, you know, the, the right things, or are we only offering scholarships to privilege LGBTQI students. Mm -hmm. um, these are just some questions that I, that I have. I mean, it wasn't too long ago, like even yourself privileged enough that, you know, uh, the, to be going to like a school like UC Berkeley. And like you mentioned, you had the grades and everything, but still feeling like because you identified as LGBTQ that that might have been um, a reason why you got passed up. Definitely a big part is identity 
and seeing their own queer identity within these students. You know, as the founder and president of this organization, who's both queer Latinx from an immigrant family, you know, and that is at UC Berkeley and has created this um, research for them. A lot of students connect to me because of that. Um, and of course, it's a, we created the first ever LGBTQ plus scholarship in the Central Valley, where we specifically give the space for students to just share their queer story, share their queer struggle um, through their lens. You know, how was it going through high school? And, it, and that's really important just because we do give them the opportunity to share their story and state that they're an important part of our community and their voices should be heard. And our queer scholarship does that. And, you know, beyond that, we have gender neutral restrooms at our workshops. We always introduce ourselves with our pronouns. We make that a norm. And anyone that rolls their eyes, I do have a talk with them and state the importance of that for our transgender, gender fluid and gender queer folk. Um, why we always introduce ourselves with our pronouns. Uh, it would seem, you know, you're working, I, again, I read somewhere that you're working in at two law firms over the summer. Yeah. You were, I don't know if you still are during the school year. There were internships, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you, the point being, you didn't just do one, you did two of them. But I mean, inter internships can really be another way of getting, a, you know, a, a rung on the ladder. Yeah. Um, are there, are companies talking to you about, you know, making available internships or letting people know? you know, how to get these internships in these companies, whether they're paid, I assume they'd be paid if they're a for-profit company. Yeah. But um, what do you think about internships and, and the role that that would play for folks? So I worked at two um, intern uh, law firms, I should say. I worked at a social justice firm. Um, it's Sid and Macedo Incorporated. And there I, I made it very clear to them that I had a queer agenda. And what mm -hmm. that means is I wanted to create a safe space for queer students. Um, and not just students, but a queer population in the Central Valley. And they said, okay. And I kept pushing it, kept pushing it. I started by, you know, making them rechange their website and add queer as people they advocate for. Um, then I made them add their pronouns to their signatures. Um, and then later on, we did a queer webinar that I organized in which I went to different, you know, companies and I talked about how to make their space more accessible to the LGBTQ plus population. Um, and in that, I went to about five different uh, companies and I said, you know, here's people that are genderqueer or gender fluid or, you know, gender non-binary. You should have transgender restrooms for them. You should introduce yourselves with your pronouns. How do you erase heteronormative attitudes? You know, don't assume someone's straight um, just by meeting them or, you know, don't give the check to someone that seems more masculine. Um, all these you know, all these topics that I touched on and went to local companies and talked about that. That's for sure how I got um, that space. Yeah. <laughs> it's so incredible. Um, I read, you know, a little bit about the reasons why you created Central Valley Scholars. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was you said, you know, I went to college and I, I, I experienced culture shock. And in my mind, I'm like, what kind of culture shock? You know, you went, you're going to UC Berkeley, uh, which people outside of California thinks is the most progressive, diverse <laughs> campus in, in the country. What were some of the things that you experienced? For sure, it was the lack of POC. And, you know, recently Berkeley says, oh, they admitted the most diverse class ever, but still they only admitted 400 black students. Mm -hmm. 
You know, so when we talk about a public university that's so liberal, why is it that minority populations, minority people of color are absent in this prestigious university? Um, you know, what resources are you doing to help these students that come from communities such as mine, you know, to get admitted into your university? How accessible is UC Berkeley? Um, and for sure, it, w- it was just the lack of people that had my same identities that I was so shocked by. And when you're surrounded, you know, by Latinx folk your entire life and to go to a community where it's predominantly white and, you know, transfer students that are very rich, I was just shocked. I remember one of my roommates sent like their essays to their parents to correct. And I was like, how privileged is that for you to do that? You know, if I sent my essays to my parents, it was like, good job. (laughs) Um, And so that, that was a huge shock for me because I've never been in such a privileged and wealthy space ever. And when you, once you're in this space, you kind of feel this sense of imposter syndrome. Do I really belong here? You know, my parents aren't educated. You know, my parents didn't go to these fancy schools. Um, but then it's really like taking the identity as a form of power and saying, no, I do belong here. And I've worked up to three times harder than you to get here. Um, so that was for sure the biggest shock for me. We were, we were talking a little before the program started about um, a lot of folks, you know, who have gotten gone off to college from the Central Valley, never return or maybe, you know, come back for Christmas. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you you feel a duty to maintain that connection. Have you thought kind of what post school, what you might want that to be? Yeah, for sure. The growth. I mean, personally, for me, it's, of course, the growth of this organization and also just really creating political leaders that are from these communities and share the same identities as more than half of the population. You know, the Central Valley right now is majority Latinx and, you know, other forms of POC, but cis, white, straight men are the ones who are political leaders who represent these communities. And that's, of course, an issue because they don't share our same interests, they don't share our same values, and they they genuinely don't care. Um, I know one of the Fresno board leaders um, is a farm owner that my dad used to work for. And my dad, while he was working at his farm, he had ended up getting a concussion from one of the cows that had hit him, had to go on medical leave. And when he came back asking for his job and asking for some financial assistance for, you know, this big medical bill that he had from working at his farm, you know, this person said, you're fired and I'm not going to pay you. Hmm. And my dad said, well, that's so unfair. How are you going to do that? And he goes, well, what are you going to do? Call the cops? You're undocumented. I'll call them for you. And we have these people representing, you know, people like my father and myself. And so that's definitely a huge issue. And and part of, you know, when I say that students from the Central Valley that make it into these prestigious universities and don't come back, it's not entirely their fault. There's a lot of, you know, trauma that comes from the Central Valley, um, you know, and also just the lack of resources. They don't know where to go to. And for sure, I created a space where I unify us, you know, as students that go to schools like UC Berkeley and Stanford, we come back to our communities, we talk about issues in our communities, and how we can bring the resources we've now learned from these prestigious universities to the Central Valley, and be advocates for our community.
This is a personal experience of mine, but having gone away to college, getting an education, hanging with the elected leaders of the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm pretty much like a radical weirdo in, <laughs> in you know, to my family. Like whatever I preach or talk about, like for example, gay marriage, you know, they were very much like, you're just so weird. Like that's, that just doesn't happen. And it took a long time to educate my family on that. Um, we started out the program. You talked about your parents kind of coming to their own and addressing their homophobia. Your work is intersectional. You stand for the undocumented, um, uh, as well as LGBTQI and Latinx. Uh, how do you, how do you, I, I think, you know, maybe share some experience with your own family, yourself, your community in maybe changing, growing Kerman, um, and being less homophobic or working more in unison for, for equality? It's for sure the starting a conversation that a lot of people are scared to start. Um, and, you know, our workshops, I try to make them as ex inclusive as possible. You know, we have tampons and pads in our restrooms. We have, like I said, gender-neutral restrooms. We have changing tables for student parents so they can bring their children and, you know, change diapers if needed. We have a reserved quiet space for them if, you know, they need to go take care of their children. Um, and, you know, in our, in our student panel, so I have, I have honorary speakers which talk about the success and, you know, how to get into this college and really lift the students up. But in the student panel, I like to, I like to talk about real issues and real issues like, you know, drinking, drugs, going to parties, um, you know, how to have safe sex that students never get the opportunity to talk about. And, you know, in these conversations, we talk about what consent is, what sexual harassment is. Um, they'll ask me, you know, how it was being queer in the Central Valley um, as well. And just sharing these stories and really defining these terms like homophobia, sexism, racism to these students and making them understand, hey, you know, if you have a friend that states that they're OK with gay people, but they wouldn't want their child to be gay, that's homophobic. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's making that clear and identifying that, um, you know, that sparks this conversation and that really makes people be like, wow, that is homophobic. And specifically with my family, you know, my mom would always say, even, even, you know, after I got into Berkeley and made all this success from sharing my story as a queer person, she would state that if she had a magic wand, she would still make me straight. And and we had a conversation about this, and I told her that's that's so homophobic of you. Why would you try to make me straight and instead use that magic wand to erase homophobia? And and she didn't, you know, at the whole time she just didn't get it. And it wasn't until an article came out about me, and she was sending it out to family members. And you know, one specific one specific family member that she shared it to you know, would always come lecture me about God and try to give me a Bible of how to like save myself. And when she sent that article to her, she said, I am so proud of my gay son. Mm. And if I had that magic wand, I would erase your homophobia instead of making him straight. Wow. They gave me goosebumps. That's so great. Um, we always give an opportunity for our audience to ask our guests questions. So we'll open that up right at this moment. Do you have a question for Michael? 
Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for sharing your story. My name is Stephanie Vasquez. I'm from Fresno, California. And so much of your story resonated with me uh, because when I was in high school, public high school, uh, I got into Brown and my family, when I told them I decided to go there, said Brown is a color, not a school. I've never heard of it. So (laughs) you've really inspired me to get more involved with the Central Valley and to make sure that I'm opening doors with my newly acquired privilege for those who are still living there. Um, my question for you is related to your identity and the, the homophobia you experienced in Kerman. Would you attribute that uh, more to Latinx machismo culture or more so to the religion um, that's so deeply embedded in the community that you described? Most well. definitely both. Um, and machismo culture, it's, it's more, it's not necessarily about you being gay, it's about you being femme. And this identity where, you know, being gay is attributed to being, a, you know, feminine and being a woman. And in these machismo culture, man is above a woman. So why would you ever want to be like a woman? Um, so it's more of that. It's more of like you're gay, but are you wearing makeup? Are you wearing high heels? Are you flamboyant? Um, so I feel like that's that part of Latinx culture and specifically with my father that was so uncomfortable with me being gay. Um, and religion specifically, in my experience, attacks your queer identity, not necessarily for being, you know, for being flamboyant or being feminine, but for being gay and going against the rules of God in their eyes. Um, and when you have these two communities together, um, it's just, it just doubles really. Um, but of course it's, it's important to recognize that the, a lot of these homophobic attitudes came from colonialism. Um, that's where it originated from. You know, Christianity came from that and it passed down to our family. So I, I do always want to give that like disclaimer that didn't originate from our culture necessarily, but um, it is there now and it's identifying that. One of the things uh, or reasons why I was also very excited to talk to you is I have a real, you know, living college going young activists here. And I think like what's happening politically in this country is incredibly scary and dangerous. Mm -hmm. If we were to just talk about Central Valley politics, what's even more scary is that entire belt as what would be considered, you know, Trumplandia. Um, A lot of the cis white folks that you mentioned uh, are big Trump supporters. But then the residents are... POC, people of color, undocumented, immigrants, migrants, um, families just like yours and what you talk about. Have you had to, uh, you know, address kind of what's what's going on politically, personally? So any of the any of the alt-right kind of attitudes uh, or groups, um, Modesto just thwarted a straight pride protest. Uh, It sounds like it was very positive. And at the same time. It's scary to me to think about having to go up against some of these guys who are members of like the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. No, it, it it is scary. Um, and you know, when the first few articles came out, I had, you know, my secretary erased the hate mail I was getting um, from people with such strong homophobic attitudes. You know, the the Central Valley. I think a lot of people forget about it. And the reason they forget about it is because we're talking about, you know, brown and documented folk. Um, and we're talking about there's issues when it comes to access to water. I know a lot of students in Mendota are dying from leukemia because of the pesticides that farmers use that get into the water. Over 11 kids died of leukemia. 
you know, over the past decade. And why don't people care? Because we're talking about brown and documented students. When we talk about our air quality, we have one of the worst air qualities ever. Um, and a lot, you know, if you raise your kid in the Central Valley, it's very likely that they will have asthma. Um, there's all these all these issues that, you know, I just personally unearthed and really try to advocate and share, um, share these stories with my family and with peers as well. Um, part of what we're doing in Central Valley Scholars is we want to get a group of, you know, youth leaders that are currently in high school, educate them on these topics and go to their city councils and share these issues, you know, and part of that is having a group going to um, our city council and, and really holding businesses accountable who use foam and not, you know, items that are compostable, holding farmers accountable for using pesticides and contaminating our water and killing our children. Um, so <laughs> as far as like the political, it's, it's very scary, but it's also very necessary. Um, and, I, you know, I have put myself in kind of a risky, in a risky place by putting my story out there. But it always just takes that one person, you know, to, I remember I was walking into a Starbucks one time and a student saw me and started crying and they stated, you don't know how much you mean to me. You don't know how much mm -hmm. you've done for me. And it, and it's always that it takes that one person to be like, what I'm doing is worth it. Because th I think this was the first summer where I really saw my efforts create a change. And I got to meet the students and the people who that, you know, who's, who that change is making a positive impact on. Um, are, are any professors or academic advisors at Berkeley reaching out to you and offering to help? Not yet. <laughs> um, I have gotten a few emails from like local scholarship orgs and local Berkeley clubs um, that are asking, you know, to expand, mm -hmm. um, but not as much as I would like, I would say. And there's also this affiliation that I'm learning, you know, with the school and my organization, trying to keep that separate just because I don't want to be limited on what I can and can't do. You know, when you talk about things like federal funds, you can't give a scholarship specifically to a queer student for being queer. Like, that's just not allowed with federal funds. Um, but it's so necessary in the Central Valley. Um, so it's learning to navigate that. Um, but for sure, I do have a lot of, a lot of you know, nonprofit organizers in the past or, you know, people that were educated already that given me advice, you know, on how to, you know, how to best accommodate to this community or what resources that I'm not even aware of that I should share to these students. Um, and we do always have... We have our website, centralvalleyscholars.org slash join us. Um, on there, you can find our contact info. You can email us if you want to be part of this. Um, we actually also have a resources page on our website, and it's where we just share all our everything we find out basically for each student. So we organize it for community college students, for undocumented students, for LGBTQ plus students, you know, for African-American students, just resources that they can look at and apply to. Financial aid, I know, is one of the topics and workshops that you provide. Is it difficult? Is it, is it hard? Or is it harder? Um, these are some, you know, ignorant questions in mind, but I had always had the mindset that it was harder for Central Valley kids, especially if you're extremely poor. Yeah, no, most definitely. And a lot of these students, it's, it's hard because we're dealing with parents that are 
very uneducated on this process. And when you're asking things like, can I see your 2017 tax records? Like, they're like, no. Uh, what's your social security number? They're like, no, I'm not going to give you that. Um, why do you need that for? Um, so it's really, you know, you face this challenge. But what we do is, I like to call us as like the preschool to applying to these financial aid applications. We list everything out that they need. We connect them to counselors around the community. Um, and we also have like financial aid reps within our own organization that students can talk to. And, you know, a lot of times parents would call our office and be like, hey, my daughter's doing this, but is this true? Um, and really just being there and being community leaders um, and, you know, advising not just the students, but their parents that this is a process that needs to be done. And in order to do this, you'll get, you know, federal funding. And a lot of these students, what a lot of these students don't realize is that uh, for your undergraduate career, you know, if you make under a certain, you know, uh, income, you will get your tuition paid for. And when we talk about private universities, a lot of times they even get extra funding that they would get, you know, for going to a local state school. Um, and it's really having students understand that um, and seeing that that's an opportunity. And we really encourage students right now, just apply, you know, just apply and then look at your financial aid package. And we will be there when they get their financial aid package and explain, hey, this and this, you know, this is this, this is this. Um, and have students that actually attend these universities explain that package and explain, you know, some, some type of things to look out for as well. So when you're not helping Central Valley students try to get into college and then going to classes and doing your own thing, um, where do you find time to enjoy college? Um, yeah, that's something I'm learning. <laughs> along the way. I for sure purposely like added nap and like gym to my calendar this semester um, just to reserve that time for myself. You know, when you, when you have this rapid growth, you, you learn along the way, but you know, things were just happening one after the another very rapidly. And I, I never had the time to really conceptualize like, oh, wow, I did that. I remember when I had my first interview at Univision, you know, and I was on TV speaking about this organization, it's, it took me like, the next day to be like, oh my God, I just did that. And now let me go to Telemundo because I have an interview with them. Um, it, it happened so fast. And I think as it was growing, you know, as my name was put out there and I started getting recognized on the street, I had to learn how to reserve time for myself as well. Um, I was sharing this story with you earlier. Just last week, I was at TJ Maxx trying to find new bedding for my dorm. And, you know, someone's like, Michael Pena from Central Valley Scholars. You know, my daughter really wants to get into this college and she needs help with this. And it, I really had to say at that time, you know, this is not the time and place. But please go to our website, centralvalley.org, and find my email. And I'll gladly talk to you some other time. But, you know, it's really learning how to do that in the process, which I've never had to do. And which is crazy to think about because I was... You know, the beginning of June, I was still knocking on doors, asking for some type of funding. And, you know, it grew all the way to where I'm getting all these emails that I'm like, uh, I don't know when I'll get back to you. <laughs> uh, you mentioned possibly nurturing maybe a community of possible political leaders mm -hmm. and that that was an avenue or a way in which we could change the culture of not just the culture, but people's lives in the yeah. Central Valley, right? So does that mean that's in your future that you would <laughs> run for office? Most definitely. That's one <laughs> of my goals. And I think as I've been through this process, I've learned that I can only do so much as a nonprofit organization 
But when you're doing, when you're dealing with systematic and institutional forms of oppression, you know, there's only so much you can do. And so you really have to be on that school board and decide where this funding is going. Um, and, you know, when I was, when I went to the school board and shared this program, they denied me. Um, they denied access to me. And right now my school personally is building a new football field, a new swim field, you know, have new equipment for the football players. Cause of course that's what makes them money. <laughs> um, but when it comes to our counseling center, we still only have three counselors for over 1500 students. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of people like to blame counselors, you know, for the lack of success that students are having. Um, but I've met so many counselors that genuinely want to help these students. But when you're giving 500, when you're given 500 plus students and you're not just their academic counselor, you're also their emotional support counselor. You're the counselor. If, you know, something happens in their family, if they have issues with their teacher, you're everything. Um, you just don't have the time to person to personally accommodate to each student. Um, and a lot of counselors that I met, they only talk to like the top 10 who are in their office every day on their merry own and the ones that are barely making it because, of course, the school has a quota they have to follow of students that graduate. So they have to make sure that those students graduate. Um, but, you know, schools aren't putting funding in our in college resources and helping our students be successful. And a lot of times these students are taught at an early age that they're going to grow up. They m- might drop out of high school and they're going to work in their fields like their parents. Um, and so really it's just so important for us to come back and be part of that, you know, city council, be part of that school board and really decide, hey, this money is not going to go to sports. It's going to go to actually helping students from our own communities. You're such an inspiration. I mean, I think uh, in high school, I was told I was going to get pregnant and uh, be a wife. And that didn't happen. (laughs) Here I am. John? Oh, I can't top that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For the folks who are not, I mean, this obviously people will be listening to this across the country. Um, Go into some more, because we were talking about this again before the program. The town you're from, how big it is, how far it is from other towns and other cities, um, because it's, you know, every geography kind of helps create or exacerbate some of the problems that, that are there politically and culturally. Yeah. So the way the Central Valley is, is you have a small city of around less than 14,000 people. That's how big my town is. And you have 30 to 40 minutes of just farmland and then another small city and then another 30 to 40 minutes of farmland and another small city. Um, and there's no form of public transportation at all. So if you don't have a car, you really have no way to get from this city to this city. And a lot of the you know resources that students have are in Fresno, which is up to an hour away for some students. So that's why we really made it our responsibility to go to each community and host a workshop there that's in walking distance of these students. And students that would email us and say, hey, I really want to go, but I don't have a ride. We funded money to pay for gas to pick up these students and take them back to make sure that they that our space is as accessible as possible. Um, But then, of course, there comes the issue of, you know, our air quality and when we only have cars driving up and down everywhere as the only form of transportation. You know, there's only so much we can do there. But when you're on the city council, you can change that. Yeah, Yeah, most definitely. But you mentioned that you're just about to get a Walmart. Is that exciting or not exciting? 
Oh, well, we, we got a Walmart. Um, oh, you have a Walmart? Yeah, yeah. Oh, con, 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 no, not no. <laughs> For sure, it's starting to see the gentrification mm. in my town. Um, and, you know, when you have this big company, it attracts more people. They're now building this big, beautiful homes in Kerman that, you know, are over $400,000 that, of course, no one from our community can afford. And so I, I usually go on morning jogs every morning. And as I was running, I began to see more white people. And it was just in my head, I'm like, oh my God, it's starting. <laughs> the gentrification is starting and it's starting to see, you know, where I live in and, you know, five minutes away, this, where these other people live and the difference in sidewalks and, you know, public parks and, you know, the lights that are working, um, gentrification is starting in Kerman because of these big cities and, um, it's scary. And yeah, we just did this big talk yesterday all on gentrification. And it's like, if we keep pushing people out of their homes and they're moving further and further away from their homes, where do, where do they go? Where do, what, at what point does it end? You know, what, what do you think is um, the reason for gentrification in the Central Valley, especially Kerman? I can understand, you know, Stockton, Modesto, Tracy, a lot of the people from the Bay Area and the, the tech companies are moving out to much more affordable homes for their families. Uh-huh. But what about specifically your region? Uh, for sure, it comes with the cost of housing. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to build this $400,000 house, you know, with all this land and that's only supposed to be for one family, it's really having our city council state that, no, we need to have some affordable housing for our community members that's, you know, accessible to them and something that they can genuinely afford, you know, create some federal funding for some cheap apartments for for, you know, families to rent out. Um, and j- it starts really, I, I personally see it with this big company and this attraction to, you know, more rich white folk to come to the community. And when you have this big company and you have these beautiful houses, you know, in this quiet area and you're making new parks and beautiful sidewalks and um, it's attracting you know, and the only people that can really afford it is rich white folk, um, or rich people in general, really, I should say. Um, and so really when I see the issue, it, it's coming from this Walmart is the start. Hmm. And then the next start is city council making the decision to build new sidewalks, new parks on this side of town and completely exclude the other side of town. Um, and what that is doing, it's driving people to go all the way to Mendota, where I know a lot of people are living in, you know, a household with over five families mm-hmm. and, you know, they're sharing and they're all in one little room each. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's really, yeah. we have just a few minutes left. And as we wind down, we give our audience another chance or opportunity to ask a question. If not, I'll start to ask my final questions. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to ask another question? I'm just curious, Michael, what are you planning on studying at Berkeley? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm majoring in sociology with a double minor in Spanish and human rights. I just added Spanish because going on Univision in Telemundo um, and trying to speak professional <laughs> Spanish was very hard for me. There's just certain words that I never learned to translate, um, never got the opportunity to learn to translate, really. Um, and as of now, I do. I added I want to get a joint degree in public policy and get my JD in law school. Um, so that's the goal. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John, I think you wanted to. Well, it was actually kind of along the lines of yeah. what we were talking about just before, which is, um, are the people in Kerman not voting or are they voting, you know, basically against their interest in voting in these, you know, people who are trying to attract other people instead of serving the actual residents' needs? When we say not voting, I think it's accessibility to voting. Again, mm-hmm. we're talking about transportation, lack mm-hmm. of transportation. Okay. We're talking about, you know, are these, you know, voting things legible for these people? A lot of people from my community, they don't speak Spanish or English. They speak Mixteca, mm-hmm. which is an indigenous language from Mexico. Um, and so, of course, that's not accessible to them. And then when we have a whole bunch of rich white folk, you know, in these voting places and, you know, we have police officers there. How accessible is that space? How safe do people feel to come and vote to that space? Um, I know part of the work that a lot of nonprofits are doing is making voting seem like a safe space and really um, educating, educating, you know, our population in a language they understand. Kind of um, doing the workshops you're doing for students except yeah, for voters. Yeah, exactly. Last question for you. It's a really important one. And, I, you know. If you, this is what did you have for breakfast, <laughs> we've gone over this. Well, you're politically minded. And I, I mean, it's been so great, actually. We've had folks who are like, well, I hate all of these oppressive systems. We should, you know, eradicate them, but I'll not run for office. And then we meet someone like you who you have a system going and I can see you just your journey and where you're, you know, where you're at. I hope that I can still shake your hand <laughs> one day when I'm like, Mr. President, um, <laughs> thank you for coming on my tiny show that one time. Um, <laughs> but, but my, my question is who for president? Oh, who am I voting for? Yeah. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Have you um, thought about it or uh, any of the democratic candidates uh, jump out at you? For sure, Elizabeth Warren, um, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, but then there's a conceptualization on my part is like who would actually be Trump. And that's the ultimate goal right now is to get Trump out of office. And that's where I see, even though I would not want him, I would see Joe Biden to be the one who, to attract some Republican voters and get Trump out of office. But if it were up to me, it would be either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. For sure. That's, you know, and then that's my personal interpretation. Um, I think they're the only ones where I feel that I've seen, you know, my intersectional identities be addressed and um, them really share our, my interests and interests for our youth. Um, I, I was about, you know, Kamala Harris at a point, but then, of course, you find out everything she did for trans folk um, and not making, you know, hormones accessible to them in jail cells. And, you know, you listen to Pete Buttigieg and, you know, one of the first queer are, are out people running for, you know, the presidential in, yeah. you know, running for presidency. And then you find out, you know, what he's done to black folk in his community. Um, so it's, it's very up in the air. I feel like every, every time I'm like on Twitter or reading some article, I'm like, ah, now I can't vote for this person. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, but for sure, like my personal opinion would be either Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. That's a possible ticket. I think, I mean, yeah, 
one over the other, or maybe I hope. But thank you for sharing your thoughts. It really does give us a lot of insight on at least what's important to young voters as well. I think, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about the presidential election, we forget that it's a big block of opportunity for us. Michael, thank you so much for all your work, for you, and um, just you're just a bright, shining star during this time in which most of us are scared, are depressed, or, um, yeah, don't see what the future holds for us. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Uh, last time to reach you for Central Valley Scholars. Yeah, so you can reach me at centralvalleyscholars.org slash about us or email me at michael.bina at berkeley.edu. And thank you for joining us here for the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. There's more programming coming up, such great programming. You can go to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you so much.